Good morning. I hope you've all done your homework. So let's uh, begin then just by reading. Um, we're going we're to look at Romans 2 and 3 uh, today. Um, we'll just read through Romans chapter 2 first, and then about halfway through we'll then read through chapter 3 uh, as far as uh, verse uh, 27. So, Romans 2. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance and long-suffering, knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of righteous judgment of God, who will render to each according to his deeds, Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek glory, honour and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory, honour and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. For as many as sinned without the law <coughs> will also perish without the law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, according to my gospel, Indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are excellent being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in law. You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who teach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonour God through breaking the law? 
For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who, even with your written code and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward and in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. I want to begin with a confession or two. Now on many occasions I've heard preachers use the expression, a text out of context is a pretext. But to be honest, I've never been entirely sure what that means. I did once take out a dictionary and look up the meaning of the word pretext. But anyway, I think that the basic message that this statement is trying to convey is that as far as we are, as far as it's, as we are able, we need to establish the context when we read the Bible in order to understand what it's saying. Now in Romans 2 and 3, there are some statements where the meaning is not immediately obvious. So, and this is my second confession, I did succumb to the temptation to consult a commentary. Now, although the commentary did provide one or two useful insights, on reflection I think I should not have bothered. Let me explain why. See, in order to explain who who Paul is referring to in chapter 2, the commentator suggested that he was referring to a hypothetical, secular moraliser. Now, the question I have is, why would Paul do that? Why would he write about a made-up person not belonging to the church? See, I believe that we have to look at the internal evidence of the letter in order to establish the context. Paul wrote to a church. So Paul was therefore writing to address issues and situations that were affecting that particular church at that particular time. So when Paul addresses the question, shall we continue to sin that grace may abound, it's more than likely because there were some people present in the church who actually thought that. Now the underlying theme of chapter 2 is pride. The symptoms of pride were evident in hypocritical and judgmental attitudes among some in the body. And in the first part of the chapter, he addressed the church as a whole. And then in verse 17 onwards, the main focus of his attention seems to be directed towards Jewish believers in particular, who it appears had some kind of leadership role that involved teaching. Now you may ask, Were the people with these judgmental attitudes really Christian? Well, Paul does not tell us if they were unbelievers or backslidden believers. Therefore, we're not at liberty to speculate. However, what we can be sure of is that these attitudes were apparent among people in the church. 
They were apparent among those identifying with the people of God. They were apparent among those identifying with the body and therefore they needed to be dealt with. And in chapter 3, Paul gives the only effective solution to pride, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if we cast our minds back a month or so to when we looked at the book of Romans as an overview, I suggested then that pride was again at the root of the problems that the church was experiencing. We learned that following the expulsion of the Jews from Rome in about AD 49, the church having lost its original Jewish leadership had to be led by Gentiles. And God blessed them and prospered them. Their reputation for faithfulness was recognised and widely known among the other churches. Now one of the problems that Christians can have is that God-given success can go to our heads and we begin to believe that we are responsible for it. And the Gentile believers in Rome were no exception. And they came to believe that the removal of the Jews from Rome was a sign that God had rejected the Jews as his people and that he had replaced them with the Gentile church because they were more faithful to him. However, they were confronted with a problem with this line of thinking when the Jews returned five years later. See, when Jewish believers, and no doubt the former leaders along with them, re-entered the church, they did not receive the wholehearted welcome they might have expected. Instead, they were viewed, by some at least, with considerable suspicion. And the Gentile leaders would no doubt have felt understandably insecure in their positions. And I strongly suspect that the question of who were now to become the rightful leaders would have arisen. There would have been considerable tension within the church, a real danger that it would split into separate Jewish and Gentile factions. And therefore, Paul's primary purpose in writing Romans was to sort this problem out to heal the division and preserve unity. <clears throat> now, although the main focus of the letter as a whole was to address the Gentiles' apparent unwillingness to accept their returning brethren, Paul knew perfectly, that, uh, Paul knew perfectly well that the Jewish believers were not entirely without blame and that they too were susceptible to the, de the deceptive seduction of pride. From what we read in the latter part of chapter 2, some of the returning Jews appear to have developed the attitude, well, we're back now, well done for keeping the church going, but uh, we'll take over. We'll assume our rightful place as leaders. After all, who among you gentles can match our experience in the things of God or our knowledge of the scriptures? See, one of the symptoms of pride is the tendency to point out faults in others. And I believe that one of the problems that the essentially Gentile church in Rome may have been experiencing was a misunderstanding of God's grace. See, some among the fellowship of peers came to regard the grace of God more like a get-out-of-jail-free card than a call to faithful obedience. And it's clear from chapter 3, verses 5 to 8, that some held the belief that God had accepted me just as I am, therefore I can remain just as I am. They even went further to suggest that God's continued acceptance of them in their admittedly worsening sinful state served to further emphasise his righteousness. Isn't God great? 
He accepts me just as I am, even though I don't get any better, even though, if anything, I'm getting worse. Doesn't just, this just show how gracious he is? See, isn't it therefore likely, under the cover of outward, religios- outward religiosity, some of the returning Jewish believers would say to the incumbent Gentile leadership, just look at the behaviour and character of some of your members. There is little recognisable difference between them and the ungodly character so evident in the rest of society. What they need is a good dose of the law to sort them out. Now, I can't be certain that this happened exactly as I've described. We must exercise discernment, and to, and to a degree I'm speculating. But given the issues Paul raises, I can imagine a scenario pretty much along the lines I've just described. Now, having considered the likely context, let's now take a closer look at what Paul writes. He ended chapter 1 describing what makes God angry. That is, when people willfully suppress the truth about him. And he describes how people can recognise the signs that God's wrath is being revealed in a society. He describes increasing idolatry, immorality and the breakdown of relationships within families and in society in general. And in chapter 2, he begins with a stern warning to any within the church, to anyone who professes to love his word, to all those identifying themselves among the people of God, not to adopt pride-fueled, hypocritical and judgmental attitudes. Such people, he explains, will bring judgment upon themselves. Now Paul goes on to explain that it will be evident in the way people live who are genuinely his people. Now that does not mean they will be perfect. Christians are a work in progress. They get things wrong. They make mistakes. But of those who have these pride-fueled hypocritical attitudes, Paul describes them as having hard and impenitent hearts. Now regardless of whether they were unbelievers or believers who have drifted away back into a uh, backslidden state, listening to the seductive temptation of pride, Paul's conclusion is that they will bring judgment upon themselves unless these attitudes are properly dealt with. People who know the riches of God's goodness, forbearance and long-suffering will not look down upon the unsaved with contempt, remembering that they too were once held in slavery to sin they will have a genuine desire to see them repent and come to a knowledge of the truth. Jesus said, those who had been forgiven much will love much. Eternal life will therefore be given to those who persist, to those who faithfully continue to love and serve the Lord. Genuine love of the Lord is evident in outward action. If you love the Lord, then your heart's desire will be to live in such a way so as to please him. You will want to know what pleases him and seek to live accordingly. You will also want to know what displeases him and seek his help in changing those things that he is not pleased with. Isn't that how loving relationships work? Isn't that what you do when you love someone? Isn't that what happens when you get married? Isn't that what makes marriage so wonderful? And dealing those with those issues that uh, we're not pleased with Isn't that what makes marriage hard at times? Isn't that why we need to be able to forgive and seek forgiveness? Paul reveals what pleases God 
He says, patient continuance in doing good. When we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, we are committing ourselves to persist in continually seeking his counsel and will for our lives. And also to go on relying on him to equip and enable us to put into practice what he makes known. Paul uses the word persist to emphasise that this requires effort. To emphasise that it requires determination in the face of opposition and a desire to overcome sin in our lives as he enables. This doesn't happen all at once, it's a journey. Christianity is not simply a get out of jail free card. It's not a license to live as you please with guaranteed exemption from future judgment. It's a relationship with the Lord that grows and develops. If we love him, we will become more like him, for we become like the people we love. Paul also reveals what displeases God. He mentions in particular those who are self-seeking and willfully disobedient to his revealed will and purpose. There is no partiality with God. It does not matter if you identify yourself with a particular religion or ancestry, you cannot hide behind an outward show of religiosity. And there is no hiding place, for he will judge the secrets of our hearts. And he will do so according to the light we have received, with or without the law. See, it's not enough to know what is right. We're not simply to be hearers giving intellectual approval. We need to be doers, obedient to his command. Faith is demonstrated by our actions, the way we behave, the, ha the attitudes we have testify to what we truly believe. When we truly understand what the Lord has done for us, when we truly experience his undeserved mercy, his love and his grace as an ongoing daily reality in our lives, we will begin to live in a way that's pleasing to him. We will no longer look down or despise the unsaved. Now that doesn't mean that we turn a blind eye to the spiritual state of our society, nor does it mean that we condone it either. Rather, our desire will not be to judge or condemn, but rather to mourn. Mourn over the tragedy and destruction that is the inevitable consequence when people, uh, people willfully suppress the truth about God. But not only to mourn, but also to have a genuine desire to promote the gospel, a genuine desire to reveal the truth to people who are blind to the, to the deception that binds them, a desire to see them set free from the slavery of sin that they cannot escape. Paul explains that the attitude and behaviour of God's people will not contradict the gospel they proclaim. It's no use saying that stealing or committing adultery is wrong and then going out and doing those very things yourself. Throughout the chapter so far, Paul has been addressing the hypocritical attitudes that exist within the body in general. And from this we can discern that all believers can fall under the seduction of pride and behave in this way. And therefore we all need to guard against this. However, from verse 17 onwards, he addresses Jewish believers in particular concerning an actual situation in the church at the time in which they were teaching the law, 
Yet behind a veil of religious fervour, they were committing the very sins they taught against. Now Paul draws particular attention to the response that these hypocritical attitudes have on others. He states that God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of them. And we need, all need to understand that when we profess faith in Jesus Christ, when we're known by others as Christians, people will pay attention to the way we behave and will be quick to note any inconsistency. As Christians, we need to pay heed to the fact that our lives can either adorn the gospel we proclaim or bring it into disrepute. And that is true of Christians, whatever their background, Jewish or Gentile. Let me give you an example. A few years ago, we were having dinner out with some people that we know, and the subject of Christianity came up. Now, one of the ladies present had a genuine grievance. She was upset by an experience she had in church when a regular attendee of the church, a man who professed to be a Christian, behaved in an inappropriate way to, towards her. I won't give you the details, but it was inappropriate. Now, I don't want to speculate as to the spiritual state of the man concerned, but what I do want to draw attention to, though, was the effect that uh, his behaviour had. This lady was upset and rightly asked the question, how can this man's behaviour be excused because he is a Christian? How can he look forward to the joys of heaven and behave in the way that he did with apparent exemption? What she was saying, in effect, that if the Christian God allows this man to continue in this behaviour with impunity, then I'm not interested. Now, of course, God is not like that. If the man was a genuine believer who was guilty of an uncharacteristic lapse, I have no doubt that the Lord will have disciplined, disciplined him. If he was merely an outward religious hypocrite, then unless he comes to repentance, judgment surely awaits him. However, the point I'm making is that his behaviour had become a barrier to this lady seeking after the Lord. Now Paul concludes the chapter by stating that a person is not a Jew because of outward appearance or by participation in particular religious acts. Now although Paul is addressing a particular issue concerning Jewish believers in Rome at the time and therefore uses the term Jew and circumcision, I believe he's making a broader point and that the term Jew in this instant can refer to the people of God generally. I believe that Paul is saying that the genuine people of God will have an inner heartfelt desire to live in accordance with God's law. But not the letter of the law, not religious adherence to a strict set of rules and regulations out of a sense of fear or duty, but obedience to the spirit of the law, out of a genuine love for God who first loved us, who gave us his only begotten son to die in order to bring us into right relation with himself. So how can we tell whether we're outward religious hypocrites or genuine believers? The Bible tells us to examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. And at the very end of the chapter, Paul gives us such a test. Who do we seek to please, God or man? When we serve the church, who are we really serving? Will we continue to serve if our efforts are unseen or go unrecognised? See, a genuine believer seeks praise from God, not man. 
Okay, let's turn now to chapter 3, and we'll read as far as uh, verse 27. What advantage then has the Jew? Or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way. Chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? <coughs> Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. Certainly not. For then how will God judge the world? For if the truth of God has increased through my light of his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come, as we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one, there is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. For there is none who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now, the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, <coughs> being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God sent forth as a propitiation by his blood, through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, and that he might be just and the justifier of the one who was faithing in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Now Paul begins chapter 3 with a series of questions. 
is there any advantage in being a Jew? Now the reason he asked this question, I believe, is because this was a question that the church needed to address. From the perspective of the Jewish believers, they may well have justified their rights to assume teaching roles in the body, since as Jews they had a far greater knowledge and experience of the scriptures. However, from a Gentile perspective, they would in all likelihood question this, particularly since they had become aware that the veil of outward religiosity of these Jewish teachers was not sufficient to conceal that they were committing the very sins that they taught against. So Paul answers this question in two ways. Firstly, he says, yes, there is an advantage in being a Jew, because God has committed them with the scriptures. They therefore had much greater revelation. Now, although all people have a revelation of God's standards in their hearts, it's much easier to deceive ourselves and justify our wrongdoing by ignoring or suppressing our consciences. When we have the written word, it's much more difficult to do this, although this does not stop people trying, and it's evident in our day that even with the scriptures, that people are reluctant to obey them. They're reluctant to obey what is plainly stated, and instead pick and choose, emphasising the bits they want to agree with, and glossing over those that they do not. However, the advantage in being a Jew is that they have great, they've had greater revelation through the scriptures and a greater responsibility in preserving and teaching them. However, in matters of sin and salvation, Paul asserts that Jews do not have any advantage. Neither birthright nor religious observance gives them, or indeed anybody else, privileged exemptions from sin, for Jews and Gentiles are alike under sin. And he then goes on, in the latter part of the chapter, to describe how Jews and Gentiles are all saved in the same way, through faith in Christ. In verses 3 and 4, Paul raises and answers a possible objection. And it's a common one that's used today. And it's based on the false assumption that God is dependent on people to fulfil his plans and purposes. Now it's true that God has chosen to accomplish his plans and purposes through the obedience of his people. He does call people to live lives of loving service to him. He wants us to join with him and cooperate with him in fulfilling those plans. However, he does not do so because he needs us. He does so because it's good for us. See, who benefits most when we serve God? Now it's true that those we serve do enjoy the benefit of our service. But if you want to know who has benefited most from your service to God, go and look in the mirror. Now although God has chosen to fulfil his purposes through his people, the success of those plans is not dependent on us. He can and will achieve his plans and purposes with or without our cooperation. Now let me give you an illustration. Every now and then, I watch a recording of a television programme called The Big Question, or The Big Questions. Now I'm not sure exactly, I'm not sure I exactly remember what the exact question was, but a few months ago, the topic was a challenge to the exclusivity of the Christian faith. The charge was in effect, if it is true that the only way to God is through Jesus, isn't God being unfair? What about those people who have never heard or will never hear about Christ? 
Now, I've never met a person who asked such a question who has done so with a desire to go and tell them. <laughs> now, in particular, the presenter cited a case in terms of someone growing up in Saudi Arabia. The view is that if you grow up in Saudi Arabia, you'll never get to hear the gospel. Now, what the presenter is assuming is that since the church has not yet fulfilled the Great Commission to take the gospel into all the world, that God is able, that God is not able to reach anyone, anywhere, and at any time who is truly seeking Him. But the questioner or the presenter seems to be ignorant of several important facts. Firstly, he seems to be unaware that Christianity is growing fastest in those nations where it's either banned or very heavily suppressed. He also seems to be unaware that God is more, able, more than capable of getting his people into and out of places and situations that seem impossible when people are genuinely seeking him. See, in the book of Acts, we read about a man who was genuinely seeking after God. He was reading Isaiah 53, and there wasn't anyone in the locality to explain to him who he was reading about. So God miraculously brought Philip to him. Now, many of you know that uh, we first met Tom um, at a meeting in Hepzibah, Marlow, um, six or seven years ago. But the month uh, before Tom came to speak, there was a, as a man from Northern Ireland. His name was Ronnie McCracken. And he spent that evening giving testimony as to how God had used him to smuggle the word of God behind the Iron Curtain during the 1970s and the 1980s. And he told us how God had brought him into contact with people who were searching for God and how he was able to preach the gospel to them. Now, the presenter also seemed to be ignorant of the many testimonies of people who have genuinely been seeking after God, who have had an audience either with an angel or with the Lord himself. See, a few months ago, while researching for Peace for Life, I came across the testimony of a man who had just such an experience. This man lived in Turkey. He was a hard-working man, a plasterer by trade. He loved his wife and his children dearly. However, in trying to cope with the pressures of life, he turned to the bottle and became an alcoholic. Now this had a devastating effect on him and his family. See, he would often arrive home, fueled with drink, and at the slightest irritation, it would result in him giving his wife a severe beating. And when he sobered up, he would be full of regret. But he couldn't help himself. He eventually reached the point where in order to avoid injuring his wife, he would stay out all night because he could not trust himself. Now in desperation, he took the advice of a friend to find work in Saudi Arabia. After all, he could earn good money to send home and at the same time recover from his drink problem because alcohol is banned in that country. However, a desperate alcoholic will always find a source of alcohol, and he did. He came to the conclusion that only God could help him, so he decided to become more religious. He decided to become a more devout Muslim and decided to make a pilgrimage to Mecca. And when he arrived, he prayed a prayer of desperation. He acknowledged his sin before God and called upon God to save him. And that night he met God in a dream, only he didn't meet who he was expecting. See, that night he met with the Lord Jesus. Jesus appeared to him, told him that he now belonged to Jesus. Jesus healed him 
and told him not to make the pilgrimage and to return home to his family. You see, God is faithful to his promises. He's not limited by the extent of our obedience. He's able to do far more than we can hope or imagine. In verses 5 to 8, Paul then deals directly with this false representation of the grace of God. The idea that continued disobedience somehow enhances the righteousness of God. You see, when some people sing the beautiful chorus, Jesus take me as I am, some don't seem to be able to get beyond the first line. See, Jesus does indeed take us as we are, but praise God, he loves us too much to let us remain as we are. And I thank God that I'm not the same person that I was 30 years ago. And I thank God even more that I'm not the same person that I was one year ago. And I thank God even more that he loves me too much to let me remain as I am today. Now I'm not advocating basing our understanding on the things of God, on songs and choruses, but I would like to point out that in that song, the question, the, uh, in that song, the, uh, the one singing it does go on to, uh, ex- uh, to express the desire to be changed by God, to have the flesh life melted away, and for the light of Jesus to be evident in their life, giving rightful glory to God. Is it love that allows a person who persists in wrongdoing to go unchecked? See, what loving parent would allow their child to tell lies without telling them that it's wrong and disciplining them accordingly? Paul states that those advocating a view that God allows sin to go unchecked will receive what's coming to them. So Paul reaches the conclusion that Jew and Greek, that is, the rest of the Gentile world, are all alike under sin. And just as Gentile believers can be identified by their outward actions, so can people enslaved by their fallen sin nature. And Paul illustrates this using a variety of quotations from the Psalms and the books of Ecclesiastes and Isaiah. And notice in these quotations there is particular emphasis on speech. The fallen sin nature is most evident in what people say. The tongue betrays what we would prefer to remain hidden inside. Paul says, their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practised deceit. The poison of asps is on their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. See, who among us would look forward to having a CD recording of all that we've said replayed for all to hear? Indeed, who would want all that we've said in the past week replayed? And Paul continues to illustrate that sin is evident not only in what is said, but also in what we do and what we choose to observe. Their feet are swift to uh, to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And Paul's sorry conclusion is that the whole world is guilty before God, whatever revelation we have received whether through the written law or the law that's inherently written in our hearts and in our consciences. See, who can honestly say that they've always done what they've known to be right or indeed refrain from doing what we know to be wrong? Paul correctly states that no one will be justified by the works of the law, whatever the extent of the revelation we've received. 
therefore every mouth has been silenced. There is no defence that we can give. The charge is just. All, that is everyone, without exception, has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. However, there is good news, very good news, that the law and the prophets, the Old Testament scriptures, witness to the fact that there is a righteousness apart from the law. A righteousness that can be credited to us through faith in Jesus Christ. We will never be declared not guilty before God if we choose to depend on our own efforts or our own falsely perceived goodness. We can, though, stand fully justified before God. We can confidently stand before him assured of a not guilty verdict on our lives. Not on the basis of anything we've done, but because of the perfect sacrifice of Jesus upon the cross. Jesus came to this earth and lived a perfect life. He lived a life in full obedience to the law. He fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law fully on our behalf so that we can stand fully justified before God if we've been credited with his righteousness. But how can this be? Doesn't sin require punishment? Aren't the wages of sin death? The good news of the gospel is that we can legally stand before God not guilty because the wages of sin have been paid in full. Jesus' death was an acceptable sacrifice of atonement, the, ev the evidence of which was declared by his resurrection from the dead. The resurrection was proof that full atonement has been made. Jesus' sacrifice was fully acceptable to God. God's wrath, which is rightly exercised against all evil, has been turned away. In verse 25, Paul uses the word propitiation. Now here is where the commentaries and the Bible dictionaries do come in useful. For propitiation is not a word used commonly in everyday speech, and there are few of us understand its meaning. Bible scholar Leon Morris states that its meaning is the turning away of anger by the offering of a gift. And Christ's death has turned away God's wrath and freed sinners from a dreadful fate. The reason why the cross is so central to Christianity is that the terrible wrath which is exercised against all evil is no longer exercised towards those in Christ. Now at this point we must be careful not to make the mistake that some have made when considering the meaning of propitiation. See, some have taken propitiation to an illogical extreme in that they have come to view it in terms that set the love of Jesus who died for us against the stern judgment of the Father who requires death. This has led to a false view of God in which we have to hide behind the love of Jesus in order to be saved from the barely contained wrath of an angry God. However, there is no justification for this view from what we've just read, as Paul makes clear that the initiator and prime mover in our reconciliation was the Father. In verse 25 he makes clear that it was God who sent forth Christ as a propitiation. And Paul later confirms this in chapter 5 when he writes that God demonstrates his love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And in his second letter to the Corinthians, Paul wrote, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not reckoning to them their trespasses. 
And the Apostle John confirms that this initiative came from the Father in arguably the most well-known verse in the entire Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. See, we must reject any thought that would cast any doubt on the fact that Father, Son and Holy Spirit are all united in their desire, motivated by grace, mercy and love, to reconcile mankind to themselves. In verses 24 and 25, Paul has given us three aspects of the Gospel to consider. He has spoken of justification, in which we are legally declared not guilty before God. Propitiation, as we've just considered, and redemption in verse 24. And in my last talk, I discussed redemption. So I'll suffice it to say simply to remind you that redemption means to be set free from slavery. And therefore, in this context, means being set free from slavery to sin. Paul has made clear that salvation is entirely a work of God. He explains that God's righteousness has been demonstrated in that Jesus has paid the penalty of sin in full. God is just, and he cannot be just and simply ignore or overlook sin. God is just, for he has dealt with sin, so that we, he can now justify, that is, declare the ungodly not guilty, all those who have faith in Jesus. And since salvation is entirely a work of God, there is no one who can claim to deserve it. So who has a reason to boast? Where is boasting then, Paul asks in verse 27. Among the people of God, there is none that can boast. Pride should therefore have no place among them. Yet we have seen, even in a church like the one in first century Rome, a church with a reputation for faithfulness that was widely known, that they were not without problems and pride was at the root of them. See, it was pride that caused the Gentile believers to believe that they were better than their Jewish brethren. And it was pride that caused some to look with contempt at the society around them. It was pride that caused some to hide behind an outward show of morality and religiosity. And it was pride that caused some to believe that they had a right standing with God because of religious observance or on account of their particular ancestry. And it was pride that caused some to assume that they are fine just as they are and that God does not discipline his children and change them from within. Now if pride can so affect the church in first century Rome, then we, need, we too need to pay heed. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And as Christians, we all have sin in our lives and therefore we are not immune from the subtle seduction of pride. Every one of the symptoms mentioned this morning is as possible for us as it was for them. Therefore, we must be ever mindful to root out pride whenever its symptoms become evident. And our best defence is to be ever mindful of the gospel that saved us. For where then is boasting? Now I want to close this morning by reading a short article which I believe effectively summarises much of what's been said. It's entitled, Ye Who Are Spiritual, but sadly, its author is unknown. Ye Who Are Spiritual. 
Whenever we notice the sins and failings of our fellow Christians and others, let us remember that they, as well as we, are subject to temptation. Think not so much of their guilt as of, as of their condition. They have yielded to, to, to temptation, the strength of which you are not able to measure. Think rather of the cruelty and subtlety of the enemy that the sin, than the sin of his victims. Regard them with sympathy as wounded men lying on the battlefield. It is our common foe who has injured them. Thus you will be kept from both the spirit of the world, which ignores or excuses sin, and from the spirit of the Pharisee, who thanks God that he is not as other men are. If we stand, it's owing to God's grace, to the intercession of loving friends, to the encouraging and invigorating influence of Christian fellowship. Let the strong, then, have compassion on those who have been overtaken with sins and faults, and in the spirit of love and tenderness come to their rescue and help. Thus they fulfil Christ's mind. Amen.